Thanks. <laughs> Bill Spear. Well, how are God's promises practical? We're going to be talking about God's promises today, and we want to keep it in the, the practical realm. So many of us have made promises over our lifetime, and so many of us have broken those promises or forgotten them, slid over them, hoped other people had forgotten them. Hey, all those kinds of things in relationship to promises. Uh, promises find their way into Scripture in numerous ways. As a matter of fact, uh, there are many, many promises in Scripture. We sang that song, Standing on the Promises of God, Resting in His Promises uh, as well. And how do we do that in some kind of practical way or practical fashion? I, I'm going to introduce a, a video clip to you uh, now that... Uh, actually stars Bruce Willis. I, I know he's famous for his Christmas movies. But uh, this, this, particular, this particular film is about a bunch of oil well roustabouts that are sent in a rocket up to an asteroid. They're going to dig a hole in it, put an atomic bomb in, and blow it up so it doesn't shatter the earth. Obviously a fairly precarious situation, not unknown to Bruce Willis. Uh, it's about breaking promises. And I know as, as a father, I hated to break promises to my kids. But I, circumstances are out of my control. And sometimes, even when the circumstances were in my control, I broke the promise because it was convenient to me. Well, let's watch this clip, see what we can glean from it when a daddy has to break his promise. Houston, we're out of here in T minus three minutes. Daddy? Hi, Gracie. Hi, honey. Grace, I know I promised you I was coming home. I don't under understand. Looks like I'm going to have to break that promise. I, um... I lied to you, too. When I told you that I didn't want to be like you. Because I am like you. Everything good that I have inside of me, I have from you. I love you so much, Daddy. And I'm so proud of you. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. I know it, baby. But there won't be anything to be scared of soon. Gracie, I want you to know that AJ saved us. He did. I want you to tell Chick that I couldn't have done it without him. None of it. I want you to take care of AJ. I wish I could be there to walk you down the aisle. I'll, I'll look in on you from time to time, okay, honey? I love you, Grace. I love you, too. Gotta go now, honey. Daddy, no! No, no Dad, no! 
Well, there are a lot of books written on promises. Uh, you can see them up on the screen here in just a moment. Uh, there are probably, um, oh, I don't know, there's hundreds of books. Uh, there's kid books, bedtime Bible promises, uh, 365 Bible promises for busy people, uh, Bible promises, jumble crosswords. It goes on and on, on and on. As a matter of fact, one author has recorded 3,500 promises in Scripture, of which uh, I know a few. Do you know more than five or six promises in Scripture? Uh, the point of today's message is going to emphasize putting those promises to work in, in our lives uh, and trying to figure out uh, just how they, how they fit uh, into our lives in any kind of practical fashion. Uh, we're going to be looking at, at a psalm in just a minute. It's Psalm 111 in Scripture. And, it, it, and Psalm 119 form the bookends on what is called or known as the Egyptian Hallel or the Egyptian Thanksgiving. And really what it is, as, as the Jews sang these, these songs... During Passover, the celebration of Passover, was to remember how thankful they were for God keeping His covenant promises in relationship uh, to the Jewish people. So as the Passover took place in Egypt, where the firstborn of everything was going to die that night uh, because the Pharaoh of Egypt would not let God's people go, the Israelites go. As they were protected in their homes, the Israelites were protected in their homes by uh, a lamb's blood that was sacrificed for this particular purpose, and his blood was, was placed over the lintel and the, and the doorposts, and then the angel of death would pass over. And so, to remind them of this time period during Passover, they read from the Egyptian Hallel, and this psalm is right at the front of that series of passages, and that's why we're looking at it today. Um, so let's put that up. Hallelujah, which means give thanks to God. I give thanks to God with everything I've got. Wherever good people gather and in the congregation, God's works are so great, worth a lifetime of study, endless enjoyment. Splendor and beauty mark His craft. His generosity never gives out. His miracles are His memorial. This God of grace, this God of love, He gave food to those who fear Him. He remembered to keep His ancient promise. He proved to His people that He could do what He said. Hand them the nations on a platter, a gift. He manufactures truth and justice. All His products are guaranteed to last, never out of date, never obsolete, rust-proof. All that He makes and does is honest and true. He paid the ransom for His people. He ordered His covenant kept forever. He's so personal and holy, worthy of our respect. The good life begins in the fear of God. Do that and you'll know the blessing of God. His hallelujah lasts forever. Well, the Bible has made hundreds of promises. And they're made not only to the Israelite nation, 
but they're made to us, to believers uh, that have been grafted in to the tree of Israel, if you will. Um, but how do we uh, know? Actually, right here where that word know is, we could put learn in there. How do we learn that we need these promises in our lives? Uh, how does this take place? I, I um, love to look at travel ads. I, as a matter of fact, I was around a, a couple of people the other day that were discussing, discussing one, one a trip to Europe and, and another uh, was in the, in the Far East somewhere. And they said, where have you been? And I said, Cheyenne. <laughs> uh, and, but I love to look at the ads. I particularly love that, you know, the, the crystal blue-green water and the, and the beaches and the palm trees. Don't you love to look at those ads and just dream about, about that kind of stuff? There was a young man that walked in front of a, a travel agent's store, and in the window it said, Cruise, $100. He didn't believe that that could possibly be true or accurate, but he, so he walked inside, and uh, as soon as the agent got off the, off the telephone, uh, she said, well, what can I do for you? He said, this, this Cruise for $100. She said, yeah, that's a deal, isn't it? He says, it's, it's too good to be true. She says, no, 100 bucks. And he said, I'll be right back. He scampered home and came back with a bunch of $10 bills. And uh, he was counting them out on the counter, and, and she was beginning to fill out the paperwork for him. And he got to 90, he got to 100, and it was lights out. Somebody hit him over the back of the head. He woke up. And he was in a river in a barrel. And he looked over to his left, and there was another guy in a barrel. And the second guy said to him, Do they serve lunch on this cruise? <laughs> and the first guy said, Oh, I don't think so. They didn't last year. <laughs> That's my point about knowing and learning. There's a difference between knowing and learning, isn't there? The guy knows and he just jumps right into it again. Uh, that's something that a few of you would do. Um, it's not hard for that to happen in our life. So how does God get us to practically apply His promises? Learning comes about through practical application. In this, in this picture uh, behind me of this young gal sitting at, very purposefully, I think, uh, by the photographer's uh, means of expression, sitting in kind of an empty room and just pensively looking. And I don't know that she's looking at anything. She's, she's probably being fairly introspective, if anything, at all at this point, looking Inner self. Could application of promises be the outgrowth of established need in our lives? In Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 5, God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham is one of God's stars in Scripture, it takes up a bunch of chapters in the book of Genesis. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, 
And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. So he gets his name changed, which is a momentous thing in God's economy. When he changes your name, there's something radical that is going on. And he is being changed then from a, a, a name that means exalted father to father of a multitude of nations. Abraham uh, was promised the land of Canaan. And <laughs> here he goes into this land that's, that's promised to him. And it's a, it, it's a beautiful place, I think. Uh, particularly in the, in the spring when the water's flowing and things are budding. Uh, later in the year, it turns brown unless there's water nearby. And Abraham is promised this land of milk and honey by God. So as he's coming to it, he, he finds that there are people there that don't want him there. Uh, there are giants in the land which have inhabited the land for a long period of time, certainly. I think of all the other things that he encounters. Uh, he has a nephew that decides to settle in probably the most immoral, ungodly place in that land, an area that's called known as Sodom. And uh, there are kings that don't like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they, they rebel and fight each other. Lot gets taken captive. Abraham has to go and rescue him. Abraham is put in a position uh, during this period of time of, of lying both to the Pharaoh and to a king later on in chapter 20 of Genesis named Abimelech. Uh, he tells both of them that his wife Sarah, who is exceedingly beautiful, that his wife Sarah is his sister. Because he doesn't want to get killed. He lies to both of them. He ends up uh, with this promise of a son. But rather than getting a son from his wife and he, it comes from a handmaiden of Sarah, his wife. And the child's name is Ishmael. And that doesn't work out very well. Jealousy starts in the, in the home. You guys have read this story. And you've wondered, probably, why is all this stuff going on? It's, it's like a daytime uh, soap. And it really reads like that. All of these stories throughout the book of Genesis read like this. There's, there's tragedy. There's disappointment. There's sorrow. There's all these kinds of things uh, are going on in their lives. Um, then there's this event with Sodom and Gomorrah and several other little towns around that community where they're absolutely destroyed uh, by fire from heaven because of uh, immorality and polytheistic worship, worshiping of many, many gods. And then Abraham is told to uh, uh, go and sacrifice his only son. Sarah finally has a son in her old age. She's 90, and Abraham's 100 years of age. And they both are, are puzzled by this event, but it's a promise from God. Notice that this promise from God has taken years 
to be fulfilled. Years to be fulfilled. But it's fulfilled. Remember, in Psalm 111, it says, He fulfills His promise in His covenant. And He does that in Abraham's life. So, Abraham is, is a witness of these events uh, that take place. He's promised in Genesis chapter 22 that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars and the sand. Earlier, before much of this takes place, Abraham believes God. And God says that it is credited to him as righteousness. He believes just simply because God promises uh, that's a pretty tough reason to uh, believe. I track back to my childhood when I was supposed to believe my dad simply because he said so. You remember that? Because, 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 and then because I said so. Remember those times. And we are to trust God on the basis of who He is. So, what does a promise to Abraham mean to me? We've looked at some of these promises that he's been given. He'll go into a land. He'll have descendants. Uh, he has a, a promised child that his descendants will flow from through the years. That was a promise to Abraham. What does it mean to you and I? Well, I think everything, actually. It provides very visible evidence of who God is and his personal interest in us, it's carried out in Abraham. It certainly tells us that we can trust God. If he's trustworthy then, is he trustworthy today? Scripture tells us that God doesn't change. Aren't you glad that he doesn't change? In other words, his attitudes are the same. But the most amazing part of that is this. What God promises, he actually can do. Circumstances do not interrupt him. What does a promise to Abraham mean to me? It means we should listen to God when God speaks. How does he speak to us? I think his primary means is, is through his word, uh, through others that have studied his word. He can speak in an audible voice if he so chooses. I, I never experienced that myself, but I, I know people that have said that they've actually heard from God. Let's face it, He can do it however He wants to. He can communicate with us. The evidence is there is that He is interested in communicating to us in a personal way. He wants to do this. And so we should listen. Maybe that's what that uh, girl in that picture was doing. Sitting. Listening. Isn't that a huge part of prayer? Maybe the greater part of prayer. It's not just the relationship that God intends for us. is isn't just a vocal one between He and us. But it's also a quiet relationship uh, as well. We're to put our place, we learn to put our place where faith belongs. And of course, our faith does not belong in the untrustworthy or untried areas. Well, let's move on to Joshua. Now, the people have been, been freed 
from uh, 400 years of captivity. They've moved out into the desert. And when the chips are down, uh, they turn to God's unfailing word. In Joshua chapter 23, this is a a portion of Joshua's farewell address. And he's speaking. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Well, the chips that are down for Joshua and the people, they find themselves in captivity in Egypt. Joshua was there. They find themselves freed from captivity into the desert, which is not a fun place. I've walked in some of those deserts in that area. Very similar to Cheyenne, by the way. I've walked in some of those areas. There's this sandy manna. You know, I don't know how much manna you can eat before you get tired of banana bread and banana burgers and all those kinds of things. Forty years this takes place. Joshua also has the experience of being denied something that he knows is absolutely right and true. He, along with this guy named Caleb, are sent into the promised land just to come back with a report. What are we going to find there? Can we take this land? And the spies come back, and most of them say, we can't take that. We're we're like grasshoppers in the sight of these giants in the land. And they're not talking just about warriors. They're talking about literal giants in the land. But Joshua and Caleb say, we can go in. We can take that. God has given it to us. So that means we can go. We can do this. It's His promise. And the Israelites said, I don't think so. So they don't trust God in that instance. And because of that, they wander for 40 years uh, in the desert. The Anakim are talked about in Joshua chapter 11. Giants in the land. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hevites, and Jebusites. But I gave them all into your hand. So what, what's the problem? What's the difficulty? Why are you discouraged? Why are you um, being held at bay? Why don't you want to go in? Why are you uh, upset about this? I remember reading that passage in Joshua chapter 24, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is saying this to the people because he knows that the people will not always trust and consequently not obey in relationship to the promises that are given. The Israelites, of course, failed many times, lots of times. Failure is not only common, but it's frustrating and depressing. This quote uh, from uh, Stanford was a quote that uh, uh, Dr. G used a few weeks ago in a sermon. Failure, where self is concerned in our Christian life and service, is allowed and often engineered by God in order to turn us completely from ourselves onto His source of life, Christ Jesus, who never fails. Failure, uh, frustration, depression, actually engineered and established by God. 
What do you guys think about that? Is that, uh, is that your God that does this? I've heard people say, my God would never do that. I'm thinking, is that my God in the sense of the God of your own creation? The God that you created? The, uh, the uh, one that you worship is one that you've made? Do you remember that passage in Romans where Paul takes us to task just in the first couple chapters? And he, and he says that you've begun to worship the created rather than the creator. And that, of course, is part of the huge problem. Failure, frustration, depression, engineered by God. Well, it's when we become aware of our need that we begin to depend on His promises. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite passages, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. God is involved in our plan because our plan is His plan. Then we begin to see His good worked out. But you know, my definition of good needs to change. My definition of good, a lot of the time, has to do with my feelings. If I feel good about something, I don't look at the, the pragmatic, in the pragmatic sense of what is good. You know, going to the dentist is good. <laughs> but that's not the way you feel about it always. Going in for laboratory tests is good, but that's not the way we feel about it. As a matter of fact, it's difficult to talk a young child into seeing that this is a good thing. It's a good thing that we're doing this. My concept of good has had to move from just the area of feelings. And I'm not saying that those feelings are wrong or bad. They're great feelings when they're appropriate. When they appropriately describe the reality that God wants in our lives. And that is good. These memorial services that we had this week, are uh, those are hard times for people. And as a, as a pastor, you're trying to focus on the good that's present in the middle of absolute tragedy. And we're, we're careful how we couch those words and couch those terms because we know it can be a little on the offensive side if we're not careful how we say this. Is God good? Yes. Well, then why? And those are the questions, of course, that fill books. And those are the questions that stimulate the writing of all the books on promises that people have written uh, as well. Love God. We're involved in everything working together for His good and consequently our good as well. When we become aware of our need, then we, become, we begin to depend on His promises. Well, God makes us aware of our need. God establishes our need and then He fulfills it as well. 
In Philippians chapter 4, and there are other passages like this as well in Scripture, verse 19, My God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He's the one that is capable of fulfilling our needs. The reason we have needs is because uh, we've suddenly become aware that there's something absent in our lives. It's either peace that's absent or some particular thing that we think will satisfy our needs. And God is interested in meeting those needs. Again, according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Well, an example of establishing our need is found in, in this next uh, slide, and it's a passage that you're very familiar with. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 13. Uh, let me ask you this question. Could temptation be allowed as one of the ways that God establishes our need to depend on His promises? Could this be the case? Is that the reason that God allows temptation into our lives? He changes circumstances around and brings you to a point of needing Him. Now, sometimes we think we need what we're being tempted by. That's what we think will satisfy our need. But that's, just, that's the temptation. It's not the fulfillment of our need at all. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, with me, I'm interested in finding the way out. I want out now. But you notice that He says here He'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The idea of standing up under the temptation means that it's going to go on for a while. That's a real possibility. We live in the U.S., most of us, and we're tempted greatly by whatever our eyes might desire. And we can get it. We can do that here. We're, we're a wealthy country. As a matter of fact, even when you're at the poverty level in this country, generally speaking, you have more than 90% of the rest of the world has. Isn't that a radical thing? The temptation is to accept that as the norm and say, that's what I need. I should have that. I deserve it. And there are a lot of preachers out there, I'm sad to say, that actually that's their message. You can have it now. You can have it today. But that isn't what Scripture tells us. As a matter of fact, this passage is one out of many that tells us that we're to stand there. Remember that the song, Standing on the Promises? That's why it's written. When are we supposed to stand on the promises? Why? When our need is established. When it's actually engineered by God to swing us around, take us from the focus on what we think we need to what God knows we need, a relationship with Him. Well, after uh, temptation, failure, frustration, and depression, why should we follow God? 
I mean, think of all those things in, in your life. When people ask you, well, why should I follow God? Temptations, failure, frustration, depression. How many years is this supposed to go on? Isn't there light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, maybe if it was a few days or a week or even a month, and we knew that it was going to be over in a month, then I could handle it. Abraham's life exhibits years of waiting, standing up under the middle of all this. Well, the disciples asked the same question. In John chapter 6, Jesus has said some really hard things. Among them, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have none of me. You don't have part of me. And the passage says that he's speaking spiritually. But the people don't understand this. And many of his disciples, that is, many of the guys that were learning from him, they, they bug out. They're gone. And Jesus asked them, hey, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In short terms, you're the only game in town. Where are we supposed to go for life? You're describing life like this, but we don't like it. But there is nowhere else for us to go. People that I talk to have been looking in lots of other places. For love, for relationship, for things, for answers to life. And as they do this over the years, oftentimes they just keep coming up with blanks. These philosophies that are self-made, that are a man invented, that are a creation of our own desire and need, don't offer what God wants us to have. Well, are we wise enough to follow Jesus? God's promise, when we don't realize that we need His promises in our lives, is that if we ask anything, if we ask for wisdom, we should ask God because God will give it to us. And in the process of gaining that wisdom, I think it's at that point that we begin to depend on His promises. Our faith really is only as good as its object. And so we use things because we trust them. We sit in a chair because we trust it. We flip the light switch on because we think the lights are going to come on. We use things all the time. We walk in a plane, for instance, and we turn right and go back to our seat. We don't quiz the pilots to see if they're up to snuff. Do you have your license with you? Do you I mean, cops actually ask us for our license and registration. We go to a pharmacist and we just trust the pharmacist, don't we? Do we trust God? And sometimes we only sit down in a chair because we're really desperate for rest. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And here's an unknown quote from an unknown, unknown source. Resting in Jesus does not necessarily mean that you will be removed from circumstances, trials, activities, or responsibility. It means that as you submit to the power and authority of Jesus and commit your situation to Him, 
You have placed yourself in his hands, and he bears the weight of your burden. Resting in Christ actually means that he's sharing his nature with us. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we read, And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature. Can you believe that? He actually says that we can share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. One of my favorite passages is in Isaiah chapter 40. It tells us that God never tires. God gives us strength. As we hope in the Lord, He renews that strength. We end up soaring on wings like eagles. Do you remember this passage? We'll run without weariness. We'll walk and not faint. Jesus has the track record that we can follow through the Old Testament and the New. We can follow it in the lives of other believers. We follow it in Scripture. We hear about it. This little formula has helped me a lot. Who we know, we'll trust. Who we trust, we will obey. Faith's object, Jesus, is critically important. Who we know, we will trust. And who we trust, we'll obey. Maybe we're not standing on the promises because we don't know the one that makes the promises. And I'd urge you today to put your life in His incredibly capable hands. Let me close with prayer. Father, we thank You for Your guidance in our lives, uh, how You demonstrate to us that You care about us in such a personal way. We thank You for this time together. I pray, Father, that we will chew on these passages of Scripture, these thoughts that have come from Your Word. Help us to understand who You are. As we go through this week, Help us to depend on You as we go through these months and years with situations and circumstances that are obviously out of our control. Help us to realize that they're in Your control and You probably have a great purpose in bringing those circumstances into our lives. Help us to seek that out. And we ask these things in Your Son's name. Amen. You can stand and, and you're dismissed as we listen uh, to this final song.